Thank you, Pastor Don, for inviting me to to share in your in your pulpit. I I say this everywhere that I've been asked to preach. It's such a an honor to to share another pastor's pulpit and to be unified by the Holy Spirit uh, with the saints around the world. I've I've preached in numerous places over the last while, and it it, it never it never grows old, uh, this sentiment that I feel uh, to, to stand uh, before another congregation uh, and to feel the love of the saints and even uh, by other pastors uh, to, to share uh, in the holy desk ministry, uh, to, to bring the word of God to his people is such a, such a joy. Please turn in your Bibles to Luke chapter 9. Luke chapter 9, we'll be focusing uh, our attention on the story of the transfiguration of the Lord Jesus Christ this morning, but but before I read it, I would like to give an introduction to the the whole context, the the whole portion of Scripture that is contained within Luke chapter 9. I've been in this portion of Scripture for 14 Sundays. It's taken me 14 Sundays, this will be 15 to, to get through Luke chapter 9, and uh, I've, I've had the, the, the blessing of, of being able to, to dig down deep into some of the, the things that are, are on the surface and, and just below the surface of this marvelous, marvelous portion of Scripture. If, if you're not familiar, let, let me draw you in a little bit. Luke chapter 9 is a portion of Scripture where the disciples, the, the 12 primary disciples of the Lord Jesus Christ, are, are called apostles for the first time. That's the, the first time in, in the ministry of the disciples, uh, these 12, where, where they, are, they are sent out. Uh, we see in, in Luke chapter 9, verse 1, that the, the apostles were sent out and they were given authority over all demons and to heal. And when I began this, this section of Scripture, I, I started it out by preaching that this was somewhat of a practicum for, for the budding apostles. They, they didn't know all that they needed to know to, to be in the direct ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ at this time, and this experience was used to, to teach them further. They were sent out as, as on a practicum from the Lord Jesus Christ, and they were given power to, to cast out demons and to heal. You put yourself in that position for a moment as a as a as a a human being with the, the power to do nothing of the sort before, and then put yourself in the position of these apostles now being able to cast out demons and to heal people wherever you go, I'd imagine you would come back, as the disciples did, prideful. They, they came back thinking that they were going to, to, to cast out demons and, and to heal people by their own power, and the discipleship of the Lord Jesus Christ through this section of Scripture is used to humble the apostles out of that pride and and into into a proper humble service of of the Lord. Now, I titled this 
sermon, Discipled by the Lord of Glory. This entire section of Scripture is about the Lord Jesus Christ discipling the disciples into becoming apostles and training them to to have the right heart attitudes to be able to carry out that mission. It's broken up into 11 different sections depending on how you break it up. They're, They're sent out then Jesus feeds 5,000 where, where he, he teaches them the value of hard work. If you, if you pay attention to the feeding of 5,000, the, the disciples are away on a retreat with Jesus to fast and pray. They had no food. And then the Lord teaches them the, the beauty of humility to serve throughout the night as, as they likely finished the feeding of the 5,000 and collected the, the baskets of bread, likely around 3 or 4 o'clock in the morning uh, after, after a supposed retreat with the Lord. They were expecting to, to go away on a retreat, and, and the Lord showed them the value and the dedication of hard work and humility from there, he teaches them to take up their cross. He, he says uh, to them, and, and Peter confesses him as the Christ. The, for the first time here in, in the Gospels, where Peter knows now after the, the feeding of the 5,000, after the humbling experience, he, he knows that the Lord indeed is the Christ. He confesses him so. But the next section where the Lord announces his cross is probably the, the, the catalyst for the, the experience of the, the transfiguration. The Lord Jesus Christ, discipling his disciples, tells them for the first time here that he was going to die. He says, strictly commanded them to, to tell no one, saying that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. And then he continues to tell them that if you wish to be my disciple, you must be prepared also to carry a cross. Peter and the other apostles would have been expecting a very political messiah. They, at this time in their discipleship, they, they would have been expecting the, the Christ that Peter realized Jesus to be to, to soon ride in on a white horse and, and remove Rome's tyranny from Jerusalem and, and kill possibly all of the Gentiles and, and the pesky Samaritans as well. But Jesus says that that is not the case here, teaching the disciples that the ministry of the church and the ministry of the disciples would be one of mercy. He later on, after the story of the transfiguration, shows him the story of shows them the story of of, of humility by allowing a demon-possessed child to torment them. He removes their ability to cast out demons for a moment in time He removes their ability to do that, and he allows a demon-possessed child to to torment them. This fiend was allowed to torment a child for a period of time, and every single apostle tried to cast him out, and, and, and he wouldn't be allowed to cast them out because that power only comes from reliance on the Lord Jesus Christ and not reliance on self. 
The Lord Jesus Christ in this portion of Scripture is discipling them to trust in Him. Just after that, He shows them that He has great mercy, and they likewise, while carrying their crosses, must have great mercy on unbelievers. They want to cast down fire from heaven upon the Samaritans. They want to think themselves greater than the children in the culture and in the home. And the Lord teaches them that that wouldn't be the case either. He says that if they wish to be great, they must accept a child like they accept him. Or, and as they accept him. The Lord says, I'm with the children. I'm with the Samaritans. By the way, I came to save them. If you wish to be with me, you will... Be with them as well, with your aim of, of mercy and love towards others, even children and even Samaritans. He f finishes this portion of Scripture with three would-be disciples that pose three individual different issues towards the Lord. We're not going to go through those, but each one of those is again used to disciple the apostles into proper fellowship with the Lord. They want to walk this road with the Lord Jesus Christ. They would learn to be proper disciples. They would learn to have humility. They would learn to have grace. They would learn to be reliant on Him and not reliant on themselves. They're constantly looking to the Lord Jesus Christ, following Him in all of their footsteps, and keeping mind that they themselves would be carrying their own cross. Possibly even to their death, the disciples would take up their cross and they would follow after him. And if they weren't willing to do that, they weren't willing to be his disciple. Luke chapter 9 has these 11 settings that I've blown through. All with the emphasis of discipling the disciples into proper apostles. And we likewise glean from them by the way of the Holy Spirit to learn how to be proper disciples of the Lord Jesus Christ. These, these teachings continue in the word of God, in the hearts of those who believe. If we wish to be the disciples of Christ, we carry a cross. If, if we wish to be disciples of Christ, we must be humbled. We are indeed mastered by the master through these experiences and our day-to-day -day experience as well as we walk with Him through the Word. So these experiences in the Word of God taught the disciples how to be proper disciples of the Lord Jesus Christ, how He cared for them, how He loved them, how He groomed them, and how He brought them into the ministry of apostles, all but one who was a traitor, all eleven we believe, did carry their cross unto death and did spread the word of God throughout the known world. What a beautiful ministry they ended up having and we're the benefactors of that through the word of God that was recorded by them and transferred onto us in the teaching of the apostles. However, today, I believe we're going to look at the, the best one. Today, I, I, it's always a struggle to know what to preach when you, when you preach before a, a new bunch of people. But I believe I couldn't go wrong by choosing this one. Because today, this is the best one. 
Today I, I aim to elevate Christ in your heart in such a way that you, you, maybe you've never had it elevated before. I, I want to enlarge your hearts in love for the Lord Jesus Christ by seeing him as who he truly is. And we can only see that from this portion of scripture specifically. It's, it's beautiful. The Lord Jesus Christ discipling three apostles in particular. Let's read it. Starting in verse 28, please follow with me. This is the reading of God's word. Let it resonate in our hearts. Now about eight days after these sayings, he took with him Peter and John and James and went up on the mountain to pray. And as he was praying, the appearance of his face was altered and his clothing became dazzling white. And behold, Two men were talking with him, Moses and Elijah, who appeared in glory and spoke of his departure, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. Now Peter and those who were with him were heavy with sleep, but when they became fully awake, they saw his glory and the two men who stood with him. And as the men were Parting from him, Peter said to Jesus, Master, it is good that we are here. Let us make three tents, one for you, and one for Moses, and one for Elijah. Not knowing what he said, as he was saying these things, a cloud came and overshadowed them, and they were afraid as they entered the cloud. And a voice came out of the cloud saying, This is my son. My chosen one, listen to him. And when the voice had spoken, Jesus was found alone. And they all kept silent and told no one in those days anything of what they had seen. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. Lord, I pray that just the reading of it has already elevated your Son in the hearts of all those who love Him. Father, I thank you for the Word and Spirit, and I pray that you would bless the preaching of it now in Jesus' name. Amen. So there they were, familiar story, the transfiguration of Jesus Christ. There they were. Peter, James, and John taken up onto a mountain with the Lord Jesus Christ to pray. Lo and behold, they, they had probably been up in many places with the Lord Jesus Christ to pray. We, we hear of other places in, in Luke 22. They, they're on a different mountain with him and they again fall asleep. They, they likely did this kind of thing all the time. Indeed, we hear about Jesus being going away to pray all the time throughout the Gospels. He, he was a, a, a praying Lord, and this time he took Peter, James, and John up with him. But he took up with them all of their problems as well. Peter, James, and John needed to see something up there that they hadn't seen before. And to, to contrast that with what we had just read, 
They were likely in, uh, in, in doubt of, of, of what they knew of the Messiah and that all they had learned from their past teaching on what the Messiah would do right now in this time. And, and Luke is pretty thorough with, with the way that, that he uses times, spans, and how he transitions in thoughts. And I, I think we have built into the first sentence here a period of anticipation where the Lord Jesus Christ was just waiting for Peter, James, and John to be at the right level of doubt before he took them up and showed himself to them and proved by their very own sight who he was. We, we see it there in a simple word, now about eight days after these sayings. Eight days after the Lord had, after eight days after Peter had confessed him the Christ, eight days after that Jesus exploded Peter's idea of what the Christ would be and what he would do, and eight days after Jesus told them that you were going to carry a cross if you want to follow me, this was not the expectation of the people surrounding the Messiah. They were supposed to win. But they go up with the Lord Jesus Christ after eight days to pray with him. By this time, they're sitting on the edge of their seat wondering, when's he going to tell us what this is all about? And Luke builds that into the construction of his, of his recollection of the events. And, and he, he, he wants us to be waiting with them with bated breath about what would be said next. So he took them up onto a mountain saying... He took them or took with him Peter and John and James. We, we see an inner circle here beginning. Not much time we can spend on that, but we see those as uh, apostles who were closest to the Lord Jesus Christ. But then we see, as he was praying, the appearance of his face was altered, and his clothing became dazzling white. This is the thing that... that they were waiting for. This was the thing that, that would prove to them that the Lord was in, indeed the Christ, that the thing, the hard teaching that he said would it indeed be true, but, but it was so much more than that. As they were praying, the appearance of his face was altered. He was chained, changed. It was metamorphoso, or correct my Greek, I see a Greek New Testament. He was, he was altered in his appearance. And, and what I believe this is, and, and what he, we can see in this, and, and what the apostles would have seen in this, is the, the pulling back or the unveiling of flesh where the Lord was showing himself as he truly was. Any good Jew would know what they seen. Any good Jew would have known what they seen when they seen an altered face and pure white. Because the, God had shown himself throughout the Old Testament in pure light. God had shown himself in the Old Testament in pure light in Leviticus 9. The, the, in the priestly service, God shows up as pure light. In Exodus chapter 16, he shows himself to Israel as pure light. Again, in Exodus chapter 24, he shows himself to Israel again as pure light. 
When they seen the discoloration of his face, it makes the face less valuable and the light more valuable in their thinking. It takes Christ from a place of, of lowness to a place of highness. He takes away his humanity and he shows them for a moment his deity. Is your, is your heart at all elevated by that? Jesus, the God-man, had shown himself only to these men as man. He had walked perfectly as man, prophet, priest, and king, yet man. And he now was taking them at the cusp of the hardest teaching that he had heard yet, and he unveils to himself his glory. Wonderful and beautiful pure light. But while he was doing this, of course, the disciples are sleeping. (laughs) You see the irony? Luke is wonderful if you slow down and, and, and ponder on these subtleties. While the Lord Jesus Christ is talking with Moses and talking with Elijah about his departure, we'll come back to that. Peter and those who were with him, in verse 32, were heavy with sleep. But when they became fully awake, they saw his glory and the two men who stood with him. Can you imagine waking up to that? Can you, can you imagine, all oh, we're going up with Jesus to pray, he prays long. We know it's going to become too burdened for us to pray as long as the Lord Jesus Christ. So we're going to go under this tree and have a little nap. But then you're woke up with pure light. As if it were brighter than daytime. The... uh, Mark's gospel, he, he records that, the, that the, the linens of Jesus were whiter than any tanner could bleach them. As crude as, the, as Mark is, that is also beautiful, showing that the light shone through the garments as Jesus revealed himself in glory. And Peter and James and John were woke from their nap and they began to gaze upon the beauty and the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ, they became fully awake. Other Gospels say that he was knocked back from this. That, that can't be dismissed. That, that when the, the Lord shone forth his glory from them, we, we read in, in the other Gospels that they were knocked backwards and they, they fell over at that point in time. That can't be Nothing else than, than the Shekinah glory of God. Where God himself approaches them in a cloud. So not only was it pure light. And not only was it contrasted with the sleeping of, of, of sleepy apostles. And not only was it proof that, that he was indeed God. They became fully awake And they began to gaze upon the glorified Lord Jesus Christ in a way that they had never done before. Now we know that in the Old Testament, as well as the New Testament, the testimony of two or three witnesses is necessary to to bring about a charge. 
the testimony of two or three witnesses would, would have been necessary to, to bring about the witness of a miracle that took place. We weren't just to take people's word for it when they brought us some point of truth. And here I believe that we have in, in Elijah and in Moses and in Jesus three witnesses to the glory of God. So take a moment and ponder that for a moment. That's law. God said I'm light. God said I'm glory, glorious. God sent his son. Jesus was the son of God. And he testifies to the disciples and to you all here in this story by three witnesses. There's, there's going to be more of this witness later as we go through the text. But Peter, James, and John got to see by the testimony of two or three witnesses that what Jesus had been saying about the cross and what he had been saying about himself and, and, and him being the king, the Messiah, and Peter's testimony of him was true. Jesus was exactly who he said he was and who he made himself out to be, and Moses and Elijah proved it. I spent a whole sermon on Moses and Elijah, so I'm not going to try to take us through the, the different thinking of why they were there. All I want us to know for today is that they're a valid witness to what Jesus Christ said. They were there talking with him. Next point, though, they were there talking with him about his departure. So Peter, James, and John not only got to be witnessed to about uh, the, the, the Lord Jesus Christ's uh, and his messiahship and him being the one uh, that would be the, the king of Israel, they, they were talking and they got to hear a glimpse of an inside conversation between the greatest prophet who ever lived, and, or the two greatest prophets who ever lived, Moses and Elijah. And while they were having a beautiful conversation together, they heard of his departure. Brothers and sisters, in short, that's the gospel. It's possible that Moses and Elijah, even in their glorified state, had never understood the gospel in the perfection that they did in that moment. I don't know the state that they were in before this moment. This moment said they were in glory, so I have to assume that they were in glory, that they were in some kind of intermediate state at this point in time. But I don't really know how that all flushes out. This might have been the first time that Moses and Elijah had heard the Lord Jesus Christ talk in person, in bodily form, as Messiah. This might have been the, the fulfillment of, of the shadowy images that Moses put forward when he said a prophet like me would come. And this moment on the mountain might have been the time when, when Moses got to gaze his eyes upon the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ for the first time. Put yourself in his shoes. He's been waiting a couple thousand years. And now he sees the Lord Jesus Christ for who he is. Oh, he's more than Messiah. He's also God. He's more than prophet. He's more than a better prophet than I've than I seen in, in, in conversation with Yahweh. But he's glorious. He's more than man. Likewise, Elijah the testimony of these two is great. And, and, of course, they were talking about the gospel of Jesus Christ. Moses got to hear, possibly for the first time, that the law 
was going to be fulfilled perfectly by Messiah, and then he would die for those who love him. Can you imagine? Moses. If you're familiar with the Pilgrim's Progress, there's a good image of Moses, where, where, where Christian is being beat down by the law. And, and Christian says to, to the law, which is in Moses' hand as, as, as a hammer, he, he says, stop beating me. And, and Moses says, I can't. This moment was a release from the law of Moses. Moses heard of God's grace for the first time right here, possibly. Can you imagine 1,500 years or 2,000 years in the intermediate state holding on to the law of God, and then in one instant you see the Messiah who is God and that He loved you? He loved you. Moses didn't go into soul sleep. And then he was waiting, and Messiah comes to him and he peels back his flesh and he says, I love you. I'm here to save you. This is about my departure. This is about my gospel. This is about my exodus. You traveled around in your exodus for 40 years. I finished mine in in 40 days being tempted by the devil. I fulfilled all of the law. And I never sinned once. And I did that because I love you, the king of glory. Peter, James, and John got to witness that conversation, or at least the tail end of it. And I bet you their hearts were enlarged. My heart's enlarged. I ponder upon these things. I can't help but, but feel excitement come up inside of me for every experience that they, that they went through. They saw the two men witnessing to them, and they stood with Jesus, showing them Christ's glory, testifying of his truthfulness. But as the men... We're parting in verse 33. Peter said to Jesus, Master, it is good that we are here. Let us make three tents, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. And not knowing what he had said. If you put yourself in Peter's place for a moment, I don't imagine we would say anything different. If I seen my two favorite uh, theologians from from all time in in a glorious state with the Lord Jesus Christ, I'd be begging them not to go too. I, I would say, wait, wait. If I, I just put you know Calvin and Luther in Jesus, or or even Moses and Elijah in Jesus, I I would go for them as well. But imagine seeing them all together, and then they begin to go. I'd just become awake. I heard a tail end of a conversation, and then they start walking away. I'd say no. Peter said no. There's no end of debate in this text about if Peter was sticking his foot in his mouth again or if, if he was speaking out of place, which, which in, indeed he was. We'll look at that in a second. But however, P- Peter was saying something that, that my heart feels. Don't go. Uh, if, if, if they were leaving and, 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 and I wanted them to stay, I would be like him and I would say, don't go. Let's make some tents. Now, this was at the time of uh, the, the Feast of Tabernacles where they would build tents and, and they would go through the, the Levitical call to, to live as if they were in the, the wilderness and the Exodus again. 
This, this is that time as, as far as I can tell. So Peter's not saying something completely silly here. He's saying to them, no, stay with us. We will celebrate the Feast of Booths together. Stay, and, and you will, and Moses and Elijah will again get to fellowship with us, even in the Messiah. I don't p- believe Peter was, was completely sticking his foot in his mouth. He was spouting off some pretty good theology. He was saying, no, this, this is the time we do this in Judaism. Let's, let's do this together. And I can't wait to have a conversation with Moses and Elijah while they're here. Let's fellowship together and fulfill the law of God together. But he didn't know ultimately what, what he was saying. How could he? Let us make these three tents, but not knowing what he was talking about. Good theology at the wrong time is, is bad theology And as he was saying these things, a cloud overshadowed them, and they were afraid as they entered the cloud. Now, there's two different kinds of clouds in the Old Testament, and I think that this is both of them. The the kind of cloud that that came to Job and his friends as they were uh, about to meet the Lord Almighty in his wrath and anger. The the kind of cloud that came in war against uh, Pharaoh and that led the Israelites in in war in, in the Exodus. Right? That there's that kind of cloud. And, and then the other kind of cloud that we have in the Old Testament is the Shekinah glory of God, which I believe this is as well. Both kinds of cloud. God was both showing up in his anger and he was showing up in his beauty. Both at the same time. Peter had su- said something that severely set off God Almighty. I don't want to miss that. Peter was interfering once again with the divine plan of God. Peter was sticking his nose in where it didn't belong. In Mark's gospel just previous to this, he did the same thing in a different way when he rebuked the Lord Jesus Christ about the cross. And Jesus said to him, anybody know? Get behind me, Satan. This is just prior to this in the Gospel of Mark. And and here again, we see the same kind of thing happening with the glory cloud. Peter stuck his nose in and said something that he ought not say. And the burning hot wrath of God came in his anger. The the closer you come to God, the higher his expectations of, of you are. That's a good point of application. When we meet together on the Sabbath day, there's a reason why we regulate worship. Because we believe that we are in, in, the, in the intimate relationship with each other and with God by the bond of the Holy Spirit. There's a reason why Moses took off his sandals at the burning bush. Right? There, there's, a mo, there's a reason why Nadab and Abihu were fried for false worship. Right? They were on a mountain with God, with his veiled, unveiled flesh. And Peter, he might have had grace upon him on the ground at the foot of the mountain, but he did not at the pinnacle of the mountain where he stood before the unveiled Christ. And therefore, the cloud rolls in. Now, feel that. When you are that close to God, that's the reason we worship in solemnity in the church. We believe we're closer to Him here. He said the wrong thing at the, at the wrong time, and God Himself came to witness His, 
to him his failure, the Shekinah glory of God as well came with him to restore him. Let's look at it. As he was saying these things, a cloud came and overshadowed them, and they were afraid as they entered it, as they should have been. Is this cloud going to kill us? They might have died going in the cloud. God dwells in unapproachable light. They had already been miraculously saved from the beaming hot light of the sun. Would they be saved from the hot burning wrath of God too? Yeah. And a voice came out of the cloud saying, This is my son, my chosen one. Listen to him. I bet Peter zipped up pretty tight at that moment. Because here we have not only the testimony of the men, but the testimony of God himself. Very few people in history have heard the voice of God or viewed the glory of God and lived. Moses in the Old Testament couldn't even view the glory of God from his face. He had to watch God go by. And then, even then, the glory of God gave radiance to to Moses as his face glowed, just being close to the glory of God. Besides God's grace upon Peter, James, and John, they'd have been dead for two reasons. First, the light, and second, the cloud. God's grace upon them. He had come not not to murder Just like Jesus had come not to murder, but he had come to teach, to to give them a witness, where he says, this is my son, the father, looking down at his son, testifying to his own son in beauty and glory. He's the chosen one. Listen to him. That's a command for us before we think too much further this is a the voice of god to all men jesus is the son of god the third second person of the trinity jesus is the messiah the testimony of of god the father should be enough he says this is my son My chosen one, listen to him. Some manuscripts say beloved, and I do believe that's accurate. There's an affection here from the Father to the Son. I believe in the impassibility of God. I don't think he has affections like we have affections, but this amplifies that. This means something that the Father looks down at the Son To listen to him. When the voice had spoken, Jesus was found alone. And they kept silent and told no one in those days of what they had seen. Hebrews 1 says that Jesus is the brightness of the Father's glory. Before we leave that, let it settle in. The glory of God shines in the face of Christ in 2 Corinthians. And the apostles lived through it 
They learned from it, and then they eventually passed it on to us. Peter, James, and John got to see the Lord Jesus Christ in a way that we, we won't get to see him until the glorious day when we meet him in heaven. The cross was indeed a stumbling block for the Jews. And God testified to, to the removal of that stumbling block for Peter, James, and John and for the rest of us. The cross was a blessing, not a curse. Jesus took the curse on our behalf. And it's wonderful what happens when we apply this to us. Not only can we learn from their experiences, we learn from our experiences, even the experiences that we have in, in the church. The things that we learned of, of Elijah and Moses and the cloud and the voice from heaven are, are impactful upon us as well. We know, if, if we ever thought that we would become jealous might you say that we weren't Peter, James, and John, and that we didn't get to walk with Jesus, and that we didn't get to see the, the, the glory of the Lord on, on the Mount of Transfiguration. We have the Word of God, which tells us that we have something far greater than that. Remember the words of Jesus in, in, in John's Gospel, where, where he says that it's better that I go so that the Helper might come? It's better that the Lord Jesus Christ would go. It's beneficial to you that I go, that the, the paraclete or the Holy Spirit might come in the context of, of John 16 where we're looking at the, the paraclete, the Holy Spirit of God. It's to a benefit to you. In, in 1 Corinthians 1, we learn that, that the, the word of God is spiritually ascertained, that, that the believer now indwelled by the Holy Spirit has this benefit applied to their heart, and through the word of God, they can have a transfiguration experience every time they read the word. You get that? The Holy Spirit indwells each and every believer. It was in a cloud on the mountain. The Shekinah glory of God was contained in one place at, at Pentecost and, the, and from the, the dawn of the church, the Holy Spirit indwells every single believer in a different way than it did before. It, it is now great. It is now grand. The, the new covenant is about new covenant believers who are indwelt by this, by this Holy Spirit. In Galatians chapter 2, the Galatian church witnessed with their own eyes the crucifixion of the Lord Jesus Christ. What's the problem? No, they didn't. They did not. They were not there. How did they witness with their own eyes the crucifixion of the Lord Jesus Christ? They did it through open spiritual eyes, through the preaching of the word of God by the Apostle Paul. Brothers and sisters, the, the Holy Spirit indwells all believers. And as we think about the transfiguration and we think about the unveiled Son of God, I want you to know that and see that glory every time you open your Bible. It, it's become a chore for some to open their Bible. It, we, we all struggle with that, me included. But it sits on the nightstand at times when it shouldn't. I've forgotten the glory of God. Become consumed by the world. Things seem more important than the glory of God. 
brothers and sisters, we've fallen asleep. We're weak, but he is strong. He'll finish the work that he started in us. So if I've done anything here, brothers and sisters, this morning, I want you to know that. I want you to know that. Pray till you pray, Martin Luther said. I love that quote. Read the word of God until you see his flesh veiled, unveiled. Until the Holy Spirit works in your heart. It's too difficult. Get help. That's why you have pastors. Lastly, I want to end with another point of application. Just like the Lord Jesus Christ discipled the disciples all throughout these stories and all throughout these experiences that he had. He is the same Jesus Christ that, that cre- through his word created the, the world in the beginning, all things created through him and for him. He as well trains us in our experiences. In the ones that you have from day to day that are outside of experience, outside of of the scripture he as well trains you through your experiences now he does that through word and spirit listen to him read his word understand his word and he trains you through your own life experiences you might not get to walk down the road to Emmaus with Christ but you do get to walk your own life with him he's discipling you In the same way, in even a better way, than he discipled his own disciples while he was here on earth through the word and the blessing of the Holy Spirit who is better than him or more beneficial than his earthly ministry is the ministry of the Holy Spirit here in your life. Our our confession says that all things were decreed by Jesus before the foundation of the world. That includes your day-to-day experiences. The things and the challenges that you're going to face tomorrow, he decreed them for your good and for his glory. He's not unaware with the sin that you're going to commit tomorrow. He hasn't pre-planned a glory cloud to come and kill you, but he has preordained your growth just as he has preordained the growth of the apostles. Am I making sense? Brothers and sisters, that is the glory of God. That is the glory of God from before the foundation of the world, the, the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ that they experienced on the mountain, and that glory of God that exists in your heart through the Word and Spirit here today in your experiences. He is for you. Just as He didn't fry Peter when He could have, by the way of His holiness, when He did fry Nadab and Abihu, for transgressing his holiness in a, in a close environment, is the grace he has towards you and your sin. It's a grace. We live with the Holy Spirit of Christ in our hearts. There's no departing from that. He never goes far away. But the atoning work of the Lord Jesus Christ has forgiven us of our sins, and therefore, brothers and sisters, there's nothing left for us but discipleship from our older brother, the Lord Jesus Christ, governed, of course, by the word of God. Listen to him. Let's pray.
Father, thank you for your word. Thank you, Lord, for the goodness that you have given to, to your church through, through the word and spirit. Lord, I pray that, that you would provide healing by the way of your grace and your goodness towards people this morning. Father, if there were any who, who felt threatened by, by your wrath because they've sinned today or, or the last week, Father, I pray that you would wash them with this word, that that sin as well is being used to disciple them, their failures. But Father, you are good to forgive. So I pray that you would continue to, to spur us on by, by your word as if it, the Holy Spirit himself is filling our sails and, and the grace of, of your gospel is driving us along as we aim to, to look to each experience in the future, that we may experience it alongside of you, knowing that you are there and close, and we can trust you not to cast us away, but to bring us in ever closer, even when we fail. Thank you, Lord, for your goodness to us. Just ask you, Father, for a blessing upon this church and our fellowship. In Jesus' name, amen.